welcome to the Unmade Podcast. I'm Tim Burrows. A few days back, I moderated Unmade's first live event in which we discussed the implications for the marketing world of the cost of living crisis in front of an industry audience at the Foresters Pub in Surrey Hills. Here's what went down. Now, our topic, as you know, is marketing in a cost of living crisis. Now, when I talked to somebody from the industry about it the other day, um, she said, aren't you doing something about marketing to poor people? And I, th- I, th- I think this is actually a little bit more than that. That's not what the conversation will be about tonight. Um, reduced buying power uh, does mean something for almost every type of consumer. And we'll explore that a little bit more. Um, and that, of course, means something for all of us in the communications industry. So tonight we will try and work out what that is. So let me start by introducing your panel. And uh, what, what you can't see from where you are is I left my... Uh, my it's dimmer than I expected. I left my reading glasses. Home. So what you can't see is behind this poster, Damo is very kindly holding up his torch for me. <laughs> So, uh, true, true business partners, that's what your business partner does for you. So, um, let me move from left to right to uh, sitting just next to me, Melissa Hopkins, VP and CMO at Optus, with a communications career spanning more than 30 years, including... Quite 30. <laughs> yeah, um... That's uh, almost, see, but not quite. Yeah, see, in my LinkedIn research, I've written more than, so I'll have to stand corrected. Uh, that includes. That might be true. <laughs> Let's not do the maths. Six years at Optus and um, three years in a global role, a marketing role at Vodafone, um, one of Australia's most respected and experienced marketers. Now, with Optus doing battle both as a telco and a streaming player, Mel understands intimately the challenges of marketing to newly price sensitive consumers. Next along, um, Firstly, we should just quickly mention we have uh, an apology from Amy. Can anybody guess what she currently has? So uh, I'm told that she's feeling um, pretty good, all things considered, but obviously wasn't able to join us while she's in isolation. So we're very lucky to uh, have Katie Rigg-Smith with us, newly announced as Chief Strategy Officer for WPP. After a really very impressive 23 years with Mindshare, uh, including most recently as CEO, uh, ahead of February's announcement of moving to that strategy role across all of WPP Australia. Now, blue chip brands that Katie has worked with at Mindshare include the likes of uh, NAB, Red Rooster, Foxtel, Volvo, Kimberly Clark, just to name a few. Next along, we have Jana Bowden, Professor of Marketing and Consumer behaviour at Macquarie University. Specialising in market research and brand management, Yana is one of Australia's foremost experts on retail marketing and consumer behaviour. She's lectured at Macquarie University in the past decade and was granted full professorship last year. And I should say, because I've done these from LinkedIn research, it's not quite as bad as, you know when you hear people kind of introduced and you just know it was from some sort of profile they submitted themselves that they've written about themselves in the third person. So, <laughs> so, uh, so fortunately, I'm sure it's all true yeah. as well. So fortunately, these it's the are... the nicest thing you've ever said about me, Tim. Oh, well, there we go. We're... The evening is young. So then at the, uh, off to the far right is Al Crawford. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> from Shapeshifter Consulting. Now, uh, Al is seen by many as Australia's smartest communications strategist. <laughs> After taking in account planning at the legendary UK agency BMP, Al uh, no relation to the political party BMP, despite his position on the right. Al spent more than a decade leading strategy at DDB and Clemager BBDO Sydney before starting his own consultancy. And I'm, I'm surprised it's five years ago because it feels like only yesterday. But there we go. So um, let's get into it. I should just mention, by the way, there will be an opportunity for uh, questions towards the end. Um, and uh, we'll also be turning this into a podcast at some point as well. So um, do think of a, a great question for our podcast audience too. So, um, help, Damon. Sorry, oh, I did say I, I did say I would need it for this bit, but I realise I can't quite get there on this bit either. So, the crisis is already upon us. Um, and men, I'm going to start with you. Um, we're seeing news stories about the price of food energy prices rising dramatically, mortgage rates have started to go up. Um, now, that person that I chatted to described it as being about poor people. Is that true or are there more implications across the board, do you think? Um, what are the implications for consumer behaviour? Thank you. Um, I think it's a really great question and uh, it's something that we've done a huge amount of research on um, as well. But um, I think our view is, look, absolutely, there are some impacts financially on cost of living. But the perception in Australia versus the reality is, is quite different. And, and dare I be provocative in saying that we tend to over-catastrophise. So if you look at our unemployment rates, the lowest that they have pretty much ever been, um, we've not seen... Um, you know, um, mortgage rates hike in the last 10 years. I would say it's a disillusioned country that thinks that that is uh, the norm. And, you know, overall, I think if you look at salaries in Australia and opportunity, um, we're doing pretty well economically as a country when you compare ourselves to the US, Europe and the UK. Now, without doubt, things like oil and, and groceries have, a, have an impact, but um, I certainly don't believe we're in a cost of living crisis, but I do believe that there is heightened anxiety in Australia and consumers think they're in a cost of living crisis. Now, Katie, you must be seeing a lot of dashboards. You're very... <laughs> I need my glasses for those, yeah. <laughs> um, I agree we catastrophise it, but I don't think we act on it. So right now what we're seeing across our clients and the categories is this pending sense of what's going to happen, but we're not seeing it play out at the till or anything at the moment. And um, I personally am interested to see when reality does hit Australia, because we haven't had a recession for 30 years. And I think that a lot of Australians felt like two years ago we faced the biggest crisis we were ever going to face, you know, the, the, the sudden um, COVID crisis. And we got through that. We're sitting on $140 billion in collective savings. And so I think that the reality will hit at interest rate hike three, four. So I think we'll talk about it a lot. People will start to, to squeeze a few things, but it'll be at rate hike three, four, where they're like, oh shit, this is real and something is coming that the behaviour will start to change. It won't happen immediately. Yeah, now let me bring you in next. I'm not going to do it like tennis or not, just from left to right. But... <laughs> um, is this even on? 
Um, yeah, look, I love to play devil's advocate with this because from a consumer psychology perspective, as you were saying... So now I'm, con I'm conscious we're maybe not hearing you that much. No, Either we get closer or... Have we accidentally Good. switched off your microphone? Testing, testing, one, two, three. <laughs> is that better? Just closer to the mic. Yeah, one of the things is, uh, you know, as you were mentioning, so much of inflationary psychology is psychological and it's not so much about the actual price rise and how much that actually represents. Often it's the emotion behind it. So from a consumer perspective, in that sense, expectations are like the important predictor of what actually happens. And in fact, expectations of prices rising are inevitably, in the end, what leads to the prices rising themselves. So for example, right now we're seeing fear in the consumer mindset. You know, there's anxiety, we've all been there with the pandemic, but here we are again <laughs> under an inflationary condition now. And um, that is driving you know, an emotional reaction. Um, we like to think as consumers, we all like to think that we're rational in our decision making, but the reality is in a lot of categories we're not, we're driven by emotion and our reaction. So if you've got a fear mindset, and if you're looking at prices going up, we've got, you know, fuel has gone up 35%, we've got building cost materials up 15%, groceries are at 7%, and we're seeing this sort of compounding domino effect, that starts to worry the consumer and the consumer starts to act on that. Now, Al, I'm not sure if you're, you're allowed to tell us which clients you work with or not, but yeah, what are you already seeing? Almost certainly not. Super secret, what I get up to. Um, I, I think the biggest thing is, obviously, we always like to apply some sort of sense of blanket rules. And as my old social scientist teacher used to say, blanket rules are for fools. And so this is going to be a cost of living crisis. It's, it's all very well to try and, you know, point out that the consumer is a sort of homogenous entity, it's going to be unevenly distributed, this cost of living crisis. It's going to be not only segment specific, it's going to be sector specific as well in terms of how it affects people. So I think whether we're in it or not in it is probably not the sort of germane question. It's, it's actually how you respond to it based on the audiences that you're playing to and indeed the sectors in which you're in. And it's very real for a lot of people. On the other hand, as you guys are pointing out, there's still a lot of revenge spending post-COVID where we see luxury goods, for example, still outstripping the boom times, at least before the bearish markets took over uh, of the, the, the FTSE and the NASDAQ and everything like that. So I think one of the big things that we need to sort of be aware of here is it's very tricky to kind of say there is a cost of living crisis or there isn't a cost of living crisis. I think it's about being sensitive to the industry in which you're in and the sectors that you kind of play to. And I, I, I go further beyond that, talking about consumer psychology, is that I do think, you know, the biggest thing here in terms of your response is actually having the finger on the pulse of who you are serving, the consumers that you're serving, the way in which you respond to that. And it will be very different uh, depending on, on, on how that sort of plays out. Well, let's build up on that point on consumer psychology because I think we've, we've got a degree of consensus emerging that... <laughs> don't want to sound negative, but the worst is yet to come. Um, how, how do we expect consumer behaviour to change, if that's true? Anyone want to come in on that one? I'd love to jump in. <laughs> Look, I think the thing about inflation is that there's this really contradictory set of psychological dynamics that happen behind it. And if we look to the US, we can kind of see some leading indicators of what might happen. So, for example, on the one hand, consumers under these conditions tend to spend a lot of money and they do so on durables and also essentials. They stock up when they see prices potentially going up, but they buy it now. But on the other hand, the other contradictory point is they also try to save. And as Al was saying a minute ago, it really depends which segment we're talking about. 
So if we're talking about, you know, like a consumer that's living paycheck to paycheck, obviously they have no cash buffer and they can't spend now and they can't save either. They're under increasing stress and it's an immediate stress. If we're talking about the luxury segment, like you said, well, in the data right now, consumers are pretty immune to that because they're earners, you know, not, not the low tier, and they can afford that. So it depends entirely on what segment, what economic conditions, what market conditions, and where we are in this spiral of inflation. I think if I was to build on that, um, I, I completely agree. I um, think we need to be very cautious looking at trends externally, um, overseas. I think the one thing that COVID has um, taught us is Australia is a very, very different beast. We're very independent. We um, follow rules. Um, we do what we're told. And, you know, that, that's not happened in the, you know, the US, Netherlands, um, the UK. Um, we're incredibly cash-rich um, as a country. That doesn't mean every individual is. Um, and I think we need to be cautious around some of the trends with luxuries. We had this discussion that if I was to make an estimate of um, who this is going to hit the hardest, I would, I, I call it the, what do we call it? The Mossman mortgage, mortgagees. Because actually what you do have in Australia is people for the past 10 years that have lifted up where they've got extremely high mortgages. They can't afford the interest rate to go up. They've got kids at private schools. They're driving around in Range Rovers and BMWs on lease. And they actually don't have a lot of assets. And I, I really firmly believe that for those individuals, if you've got an $8,000 a month mortgage and you start having interest rates go up, that is going to freak the hell out of them. Yeah, that is why I'm thinking that third and fourth one is where people are really going to start to um, make decisions on what they're purchasing. And for me, it's always been fascinating, the trade-off that happens and the, in, the internal dialogue. So I remember working in finance when we were cash society and there were ATMs around everywhere and that's how we got our money. And I remember the research where people would walk three kilometres to a different ATM because they wouldn't go to one that charged them $2. And they would go out of their way, but then they'd pay an extra $4 for almond milk. And so the trade-off that people are going to have at the moment won't necessarily be about cost savings, but it'll be about just in their head the decisions that they're making. And so it's a big opportunity for us as brands and as marketers to help them with that justification, help them identify why that's actually a product that they should be purchasing, back to the emotional point of view, and make that justification internal dialogue make sense. One, sorry, one thing on that which I think is really good from what everybody's saying is this is a dynamic and evolving situation. And so unless you've got Harry the Octopus or whoever it was that was predicting the World Cup results, you don't know what's actually going to play out from here. My sense is, is that we are very data rich at the moment in terms of understanding consumers, but we're quite empathy poor in some ways. I think that there was that faith popcorn thing about cocooning way back in the 90s. I think we've been hyper cocooning uh, in terms of what we've been doing over the last few years, COVID related. And I specifically think that if you look at marketers, there's this hilarious survey showing how many people we think have got multiple streaming services or we, and we don't know the price of milk, for example. I think it's going to be ever more important to walk in your consumer's shoes. That diagnosis, that monitoring, this is going to go on for a while now. And the brands that are actually more empathetic and understand what's going on are going to be able to respond to it yeah. much more strongly than the ones that are yeah. stuck. I'm not walking three kilometres in their shoes to a different ATM, but I do think as well that empathy and understanding what um, annoys people about brands and services will be really important too. I, um, I spend a bit more of my time in Tasmania than Sydney these days. And I was in Woolworths the other day uh, in Wynyard, 
not the Wynyard Railway Station here in Sydney, but the Wynyard in northwest Tasmania. And I just listened, eavesdropped, if you will, on a couple dis discussing the price of land. And in the end, they decided not to buy it. Um, are, we, are we in a bit of a bubble here where we're not actually perceiving what's going on outside of Surrey Hills? Uh, yes and no. Um, and, I, and I wonder um, on that that I think that Australia is quite um, vast and it's different. You know, it's funny, you know, we talk about needing to walk in our consumers' shoes and no more. Um, I find that frustrating because I think any decent marketeer or agency should be doing it already. And I think sort of what's happened through COVID, it's pushed out who are the, the lazy agencies and lazy marketeers, um, where consumers' mindsets change yearly, right? So if you're not out there doing it, that's really important. But I do wonder too, if we're heightened to hearing it, would that couple still be having that conversation about lamb um, and you just haven't picked up on it? Yes, or so that they were always having it anyway, as opposed to... I, I, I don't being... know, I'm not saying there's not an issue, but are we hypersensitive to hearing it? And do you think maybe we're making consumers more sensitive the more it's talked about? I think you just have to look at the headlines in the paper. Yana, let me bring you back in. Absolutely. Um, you know, there's this... There's this this concept called social contagion, and we're, we've all seen it with the doom scrolling, particularly through COVID, where you know we're sitting on social media, we're reading those headlines, as you said, and we're feeding into that negative information. And the issue with consumers is that losses loom larger than the gains. We notice that negative information, and we often get caught in that negative spiral of thought processes. So it's an amplification effect, isn't it, when we're reading this content? But if we have a look at some recent stats, you know, CBA just released their data on spend, for example, just this month, and, you know, consumers' intention to purchase even household durables is down 24% right now. So here we're pulling back and we're closing those purse strings, and also consumer confidence is also dropping. It's heading towards the lowest it's been since the 90s. So there is, you know, there are jitters amongst consumers and there is real fear, but it is being, you know, also spiked by the social contagion effect. Kate. Oh, but, but I would say the fear is real if your interest rate is going up. And I think that's where the story does exist, because there are people having more pronounced conversation about the price of land that maybe two years ago they weren't having because it wasn't as, an, as much of an issue. So I think if we sit here and say that actually, because we're all talking about it, it's making it real, I don't actually believe that. I believe it's real for a lot of people because they have mortgaged themselves to the hilt and now they're looking going, oh my God, an extra, an extra point in that percentage and I'm screwed. So I, I think therefore what we have to do is, is back to the point of empathy. Um, and I think we have to be very understanding in our comms and real in how we're communicating with people. And it looked like you were about to come in there. Uh, no, no, I was just having a moment actually, but um, yeah, but, but I'll say something just because I'm required to at this particular moment in time, but I, I do tend to agree is that I think the idea that this is something that's kind of cooked up by the media is just bullshit, isn't it, basically, is that there are people already, you know, when we talk about a cost of living crisis, that is endemic anyway. This is going to be exaggerated for lots of people. And so the conversation that you've had may be hypersensitised to it, but so are people at the moment that are confronted by the fact that they are having to make decisions between essentials 
that they, they weren't having to do so beforehand. So I don't think it's a case of, of course, the media are going to amplify it, of course, fear spreads. But of course, actually, there's a substantive reason as well, is that people are going to be having to make choices, whether it's in discretionary stuff or in essential stuff, that they weren't having to make beforehand. So this is very real. And I do still think that there is a huge issue at the moment is that I don't think, although it might be seen as something that brands should and agencies should do, I do still think that often actually the sort of the making marketing numerical a lot of the time is we forget there's a superhuman aspect to this. And the brands that will prosper will obviously understand their consumers from a data perspective, but they will also understand them from a human perspective. If you get caught with your hands in the cookie jar, or if you misjudge public opinion at this particular moment in time, you are toast as a result of it. And this is a dynamic and ongoing situation that you need to be monitoring fairly closely. Yeah. Can I jump in there? Absolutely. In fact, there's so much research that shows, and I think we forget it, that consumers have relationships with brands. And there's actually research at Harvard who says, you know, those relationships vary. Some of us are married to some of the brands we have. Some have one-night flings, one-night stands, you know, it's flirtatious relationships. It depends on the category. But at the end of the day, consumers use many of the brands that they buy. And I know Optus is true for Optus as like a protection mechanism for them. It's a part of their life. It's who they are and their identity. It's identity loyalty. So I think we've got to realise that, you know, we've got to be sensitive to the consumers, like, you know, price points and the pressure points right now, but we have to be empathetic also in how we do that and, and realise what the brand is there for, not just the transaction. But as you said, I mean, like, consumers aren't stupid and they're also sensitive to bullshit. <laughs> so you've got to be authentic in how you do it. You can't just come in there and say, look, we, you know, we think about you, we care about you, if that doesn't fit with the brand value. Well, let's drill a bit more into how marketing strategy, maybe media strategy, changes in this environment. Katie, I'll start with you. Uh, how spend how, more? Yeah, I've got, I, I, I'm gonna, <laughs> no, I'm going to say it. I, I, you, you have to keep, even if you can't spend more, I'm being flippant, but you do need to continue to invest. It's no different from a recession where all of the field benay, every bit of research would suggest that the more you can invest in your brand, the more share of voice you can get, the better you're going to come out the other side. Um, there's a real fear that if you continue to cut spend now, you never actually get that budget back afterwards. Um, I just think it's how you're using the channels, what the messaging strategy is that might change um, as you go along, but definitely need to keep continue to invest. And actually that's an interesting point. Let's just drill into that a bit more. How might that strategy change? What sort of things might change? I think it's back to that um, the justification in why you're choosing a product and really understanding why people might be tipped over the head to justify your brand over another brand, even if, you know, and I'm fascinated to see pricing strategies at this point. You know, the brands that decide to cut pricing and potentially keep their loyal base and then have that base coming out, but they've eroded their margins. Brands that will potentially um, increase or keep their pricing and lose churn. But so, so I think that those messagings will be important as well um, as we go through. Now, Mel, I'm conscious that you can't just be disclosing your pricing strategy going forward. Sure, I'm going to do it right now. Competitive <laughs> environment we're in, but very broadly, I mean, pricing is a lever. How do you think about the various marketing levers and which ones you should be pulling at the moment? Well, look, some of it is just going back to the good old four Ps, and, and we do that as an organisation regularly. Um, look, the, the fact of the matter is, over the past 12 months, Australian consumers have become 10% more price sensitive. So that is more than COVID. Anxiety at the moment, we work with an amazing partner called Forethought. Um, anxiety in Australia is higher now than it was at the beginning of COVID. So, so that, is, that is real, and we look at that if customers are price sensitive, 
we need to be really sensible around how we look and market that. But at the same time, we're also an organisation where we've got inflationary growth, um, we've got a real war on talent and wages in this market at the moment. Um, they say war for talent? Yeah, well... Rather than war on talent? Yeah, exactly, war for talent. Yeah, okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, but, great, thanks. Thanks for the pickup. Sorry. Um, no, 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 no that's, that, 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 that's fine. So, you know, the business also to its shareholders has to manage, you know, what it's doing and, you know, its investor returns. So I think the big thing with Australians full stop is um, they care about value and not shying away from, from value. And I know she won't mind me sharing this uh, a great friend of mine that used to actually work at Optus and now is at Woolies said she was having an argument with her team around whether they put the price of apples in the television ad because the apples have gone up. Um, but actually, I think, you know, if you're just sharing its good value where you are, it's fine in, 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 in some um, categories. But consumers are incredibly price sensitive. And I think the days of doing um, ads that feel... Um, hedonistic are over. I actually want to call out, I mean, some people may not love it, the, the new work that um, Jenny has pulled out from Arnott's. Um, you know, I think that is a really, really good, good yeah, I love it. And it's a really good nostalgic ad that shows people in real everyday life. I think those sorts of cues are really important. Yeah, so it certainly wouldn't surprise me. Is that, I, mean, I think the two things that come out of what you say is one, obviously you need to do right by the consumer, but you also need to do right by the bottom line as well. And so this is going to be a huge dilemma for marketers. And actually the third part of it is can you do right by the, the planets as well in some ways? Or, you know, so the, these are going to be the things that marketers are going to struggle with and how do you kind of balance those things. I also think those that we might see going forward is that we've seen an awful lot of stuff in boom times. And I'm not saying this is a good or a bad thing of brands getting involved in societal issues. It wouldn't surprise me now if we see them go back to their knitting to demonstrate their value to the consumer in terms of the benefit that they provide to the individual or to the household, for example. And so where we see quite a lot of stuff historically in terms of brands going beyond into societal issues, we might now see them going back more into household issues. I don't know whether that's a good or a bad thing, but as you move from that sort of Maslowian thing of self-actualization back down to survivability again, it wouldn't be surprising if we see quite a lot of that going on as well. Let's touch a bit more on kind of the behavioural economics side of it. Um, obviously, we talked about price. Um, shrinkflation has come up a bit recently, you know, this idea that you're paying the same thing for your Cadbury's chocolate bar, but you'll, you'll get less. What are the... Yeah, what are the opportunities around that? Um, and shrinkflation is such an interesting phenomenon. Um, I think I noticed it today when I was packing my daughter's food. But, um, you know, the issue here is that consumers notice a price rise more than they just notice the reduction in the product. And, you know, Cadbury, I mean, it's like, you know, what is that, 15 grams or so? And then they've pitched it as, yes, it's less. However, you're getting more because it's chunkier. And so it's like you're trying to sell the value proposition behind the shift in the product to a smaller portion. Um, really, from a consumer perspective, it's avoiding this concept of sticker shock, you know, seeing that price rise. Now, the thing for the consumers is we always look at prices and we remember the prices, but who here remembers net weight? Like... We don't really remember net weight, but we'll notice the price. So it's like avoiding that and trying to absorb costs, you know, through the supply chain. I think, too, it's really interesting when you look at categories. So, I mean, this is something, you know, we can't control as an industry. But a new iPhone is over $2,000. 
and 65% uh, of the market in Australia are buying them outright, right? 65%. Now, if you just even go back five years ago, you're looking at $800. Yeah. How many people, and it's actually, it's not just us in the room, you know, we do a lot of work with supercars, um, which, um, you know, you sort of look at the demo there, that's really important to us. Those individuals end up spending more money on um, handsets and um, electronics than um, actually those that earn larger incomes. And I find it just really interesting, the psychology, that it makes sense that I'm going to spend over two grand on a phone that I go, oh, shit, I cracked it. Um, but, but then I'm, you know, and I'm even guilty of it. Well, I'm not buying finish if it's not on special. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. But I think when we've got, like, you know, products like Apple, there's aspiration built into that. You know, FMCG is like, yeah, there's aspiration in some categories, but less so. This is more like the thing to be seen with. So there's the social fear of missing out and the social pressure to consume and show it as a conspicuous product. Yeah, and I think that's that trade-off again. Of, of, and it, it is funny, it puts a spotlight, well, it puts a spotlight on everyone's individual quirks, right? Because what will annoy you in those or your place of priority on might be totally different to someone else, which is why we have to treat everyone as individuals. I think for me, from a media point of view, it's also interesting to see how the consumer journeys change and how much more people are leaning into their research and things that before they might have been a little bit more flippant with, yep, sign me up, I'll buy that. And now they're looking much more at the terms and conditions. They're looking much more at what they're getting in for. Well, let's, uh, this is probably a, a good opportunity to invite a question. And we, we won't bring a microphone to you because that doesn't seem like good COVID practice. So uh, if you have a question, I'll ask you to shout it out and then I'll, I'll repeat it for the uh, podcast listeners. So let me see if I can invite anyone who might have an observation or question. For our podcast listeners, Julian's uh, question is around... Um, supply when you can't get the product in the first place yeah look, a few observations on our clients is we've had that's why media budgets have been cut because they actually can't get the supply chain in and so they, they, cut, they don't want to advertise through it um which again they, they need to but i think the other thing is managing customer expectations i won't name and shame brands but you only have to look on some brands facebook pages and the customers are screaming at them for the delivery but our car clients, it's pretty much understood now it'll take six to nine months and people are okay with it. So I think it's how overt brands are able to be with the supply chain, how authentic they can be with their customers, because people are actually understanding. But if you're not doing that, then you see it play out pretty negatively. But I think also what you pointed out is exactly right, is that all of these, the problem with often how we've referred to rules about, you know, Les Burnett and Peter Field talked about the fact that the COVID-based recession was in many ways a supply side recession as well. So the notion of advertising your way through when you have no supply is a nonsensical one, for example. So I think this is exactly the point, is that every sector needs to look at exactly how they handle this, because it will be different depending on if you've got supply side issues, there's not much point marketing the hell out of goods that you don't have, for example. So a lot of emphasis, as you say there, Katie, needs to go into how do we mitigate or how do we uh, mitigate the effects on the consumer, an expectant consumer that's not going to have their goods delivered to them. Your, your advice to marketers who can't get any product? Well, no, I, I think actually it's not a marketer's issue, it's a business issue. There is a massive supply chain issue. You know, Apple can't get stock out of China, for example, at the moment. There's a semiconductor chip issue, we, we know that. Um, what is going on in the building industry, you just have to look at what's happened with Metricon. That is not because the business was managed poorly. There is a supply chain issue and it goes to show Australia's over-reliance on, um, unfortunately, other countries to provide um, 
a lot of our um, goods and services. Now, you know, that frustrates me in the case of building. It deeply frustrates me in the case of food because so much of our fruit and vegetables are imported from, from abroad um, and actually even clothing. If you sort of start looking at that, you know, you just had to go into Kmart at the beginning of COVID and there's no anchor products anywhere because they weren't coming in from China. So um, I think it's twofold. I think we as businesses have to look at alternate ways and what we can do at Australia, in Australia, to make Australia um, a little bit more self-reliant. I think that's number one. And then I think number two, it's a real fine balance. I think the car industry, I fully get it. If Optus was to go out and start saying, uh, like, so, so we don't spend if we don't have the product, but if we were going out and saying, we've got issues and we don't know week to week when we're going to be getting mobile phones, it would kill our business and killing our business would make 8,000 people redundant, right? So it's a, it's a really fine line. I think, uh, did I say another question from you, John? I'll start. So, John Butterworth, I'll say it myself. Um, last few years, we've seen an explosion of uh, rewards programs, discount programs, cashback, and what, what have you. Great question from John there. And in case anyone didn't hear it, um, rewards program, loyalty in the long term, what's the evidence that it works now? Well, I mean, we wound down our loyalty program um, perks, and we're building loyalty in, in different ways. Um, I think if it's inherently linked to the product, it's really clever. So um, I'm a massive fan and actually not just personally, but I think they're, they're brilliant from a marketing point of view of Mecca and how Mecca manage um, loyalty. And for the males in the room that may not visit Mecca, if I'm honest as well, um, their entire customer loyalty and EDM program sign up, it's, it's world class. Um, if it's linked to the product, it makes, it makes great sense. I think if you are just pushing discounting the whole time, you are training the market to, to be price sensitive. And, you know, Optus, four years ago, you could get an iPhone for 59 bucks a month. But all that ended up coming off that was people weren't joining Optus because they wanted to join Optus. They were joining Optus for a cheap deal. And when the cheap deal was over, they left. So loyalty, I believe, is great if it's linked inherently to the product. I also think your point is a really good one, which is value ultimately is a subjective thing, isn't it? It's price over benefit in many ways. And so if all you're doing is yanking the price lever as hard as possible and not spruiking your benefits, then that's only going to lead you to one place. And I think, as you were saying, Katie, you know, one of the interesting things about this is, is that you know, we know that companies that thrive during these difficult periods ultimately will be ones that sustain their sense of value in the, in the sense of, is the price worth the benefits that I'm being provided? And it's just a, it's an erroneous and stupid idea just to be yanking one side of that equation. Yeah, no. yeah I just jump in there. There's, like, you know, there's a two levers, aren't there? We all know there's transactional loyalty, which is the price deals, but it leads to spurious loyalty, people just sign up for the deals, as you said. On the other hand, there's the real brand engagements, the area that I research, which is much more of an emotional connection to a brand, and it's different. It's attitudinal loyalty. It's when your consumer chooses you because they want to have you in their life, and they like you, and they think that you're a part of their you know, identity, as I said before, identity loyalty. And so you've got to be careful of that fine line because it's one thing to offer the coupons and discounts. The data right now says that 88% of consumers are looking for coupons and discounts. They want them in the rewards program. Um, and 30% are looking for general deals. So they're much more price sensitive. But you need to make sure that there's that value beyond purchase, as you said before. Like, what else is the brand to the consumer? Because it's not just the price. You know, it's the, it's the emotional benefit and the connection that they have to the brand. Well, I reckon there's probably time for just one more 
uh, question, which I'm, I'm going to ask. And let's try and finish on a positive, and I start at the far right and move round to the left this time. Um, what does the what does the opportunity look like? How can marketers come out of this as winners? Uh, God, this is such a massive, that's like an exam question, not an interview question. I've no idea. Panic is what I'm, is going on in my head at the moment. Um, I think how they can come out of it is that, you know, as with all of these things, you know, it's a, it's a good opportunity to reassess uh, everything and not to be stuck in your ways and to understand, as I say beforehand, it is, this is going to be segment specific, it's going to be sector specific, it's about understanding that it isn't about a blanket rule for absolutely everyone if you're in essentials, it might be different to if you're in luxury goods, likewise if you're in petrochemicals at the moment, you might respond differently and rely on the geopolitical situation for example to do your explanations for you rather than if you're in toilet paper for example. I think the idea ultimately that there is one way of coming out of this is a fool's errand and that this is about marketers understanding this is a moment of a dynamic situation where you need to assess very carefully and diagnose very carefully. We know that a lot of strategy is based on diagnosis before action and that's going to be the most important thing. Yana? Do I fail before I start? <laughs> Look, I think, like, to simplify from a consumer psychology perspective, absolutely, you need a finger on the pulse. But I think that's probably generally a two-pronged approach. You know, number one is to recognise that consumers need the facts. We are talking about expectations and price and discounts and so on before. You know, communicating what you're doing to try and help the consumer. Financial well-being is really important right now. There's data that says that 50% of consumers are feeling stress, from psychological stress from rising prices generally. Real or perceived, it doesn't really matter. They're feeling it. And then I think on the second hand, you've got to think about what we are talking about before, like the empathy side, the feels, so facts plus feels, like how are they feeling and therefore how can the brand connect and communicate to empathise with their current conditions, remembering that authenticity is like absolutely critical and you've got to be you know, genuine in how you do it. Katie, the opportunity. Um, I think there's a huge opportunity to continue to innovate. Every time we have our backs against the wall, that's when we come up with the most interesting and innovative responses to things. And businesses turn to D to C overnight, virtually in COVID. We've proven that we can actually come out of these things in a better place. So I'm excited to see what innovations we're all going to come up with in order to enhance this moment rather than make it a negative. I think there is a great opportunity to build a more sophisticated marketing and agency community. Um, I think the best thing you can do is get your head out of your own category and brand and start understanding the psyche of Australians as a whole and then the psyche of key demographics because actually that's where you will um, win. I think as marketeers, we shepherd brands and we have a huge responsibility on the tone of, of the nation and we should be embracing the fact that, you know, Australians are inherently um, an optimistic bunch. All the research will demonstrate they're fed up with being told life is crap. They're, they're scared of they're scared of wars, they're scared of COVID today, they're scared of monkeypox. The recent election actually just goes to show a whole lot of disillusionment. And I think we've got a, a real job to step back and say that the best marketers and the best advertisers traditionally are the ones that have not been narrow-minded around their brands, but they've understand and understood the psyche of a country. So, yeah. An awful lot encapsulated there. So um, thank you again to Howitson and Company for your sponsorship support for this evening. And most importantly, please thank our panel. That was Unmade's first live event. 
there'll be more to follow soon. If you haven't already, do sign up to Unmade at unmade.com.au. Thanks again to Howitson and Company for sponsoring the event. Audio production of this podcast was by Abe's Audio. Toodle pip. Unmade. Podcast edit by Abe's Audio.